Thank you so much for coming here to the Michelle Miao Show. Our special guest today is the author of Ike's Mystery Man, which reveals the secret lives of Robert or Bobby Cutler, who served as the first first national security advisor under President Eisenhower and shepherded an executive order that damaged thousands of federal employees' lives who just happened to be gay. Although that policy may seem shocking and egregious, I think uh, one very shocking fact that we are going to talk about is that Bobby Cutler was in fact gay, also gay. So here to reveal much more in the secret life of Bobby Cutler is his great uncle, Peter Schinkel. Great nephew. Great nephew. <laughs> He's the great uncle. Sorry. Reverse. <laughs> Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're bringing people back from way back when. <laughs> so um, I just happened to watch a show in which uh, a body gets possessed, but we're, that's not what we're doing here today. We're here to talk about your book. All right. So before we get started in all the, the great facts and, the, and this incredible book that you've put together, Let's start with how you even got to this place where, you know, the, the book became an idea. Um, I believe that it was really a conversation that you had with your aunt. That's right. Well, it was back in 2006. And I, at that point, I'd been a newspaper reporter for almost 20 years. Um, but I had um, just wrapped up and left that my last newspaper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And I was at, uh, the, on the, at the Rhode Island shore for a summer vacation. And the subject of Bobby Cutler came up. And I had grown up and, and lived much of my life in Missouri. And I didn't know Bobby because he was a Bostonian. But he was my mom's and uh, aunt's uncle. And my aunt said that he was gay. And I was almost instantaneously amazed to think um, that this man who she explained, was a close associate of President Eisenhower, um, was gay in that era, because it was a hidebound, very traditional era in which there was not a lot of talk about homosexuality, unless it was to um, decry it as a, uh, something that was criminal, um, something that was a security risk, something that was a sign of moral decline, uh, how could it be that a man was the close associate of President Eisenhower? So that launched me into um, a 12-year effort to um, employ my journalistic skills to try to figure out this story. It included multiple trips to the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas. Uh, and the staff there, by the way, introduced me to a man who was a young man on the campaign who knew my great uncle. My, my great uncle, by the way, had died in 1974, and I had never met him. Um, so I ultimately w met this young man, this, who was then in his 80s, Stephen Benedict, and he provided me a treasure trove of documents. And um, so I'm rambling and telling you the story of how it all began, but that's how it began. So. <laughs> well, and key yeah. in, in those documents were diaries. Correct. So yeah. tell us about those, because that really gives you, that, I mean, that, that confirms that, the, what you had been told about. That's right. So um, these diaries, were, they're not just diaries, um, and I have a picture of them later, but they're actually, uh, there are six volumes of handwritten diaries. They are um, more than 160,000 words um, written by Bobby Cutler for over a decade, starting in, in um, 1958. Mm. And they, in them, he spills out his love for a young man he hired to work on the staff of the National Security Council in 1953. And um, they're painful reading um, because they, uh, he, he goes to the heights of ecstasy in his love for this young man, but he also goes to extreme depths of desperation and sadness because um, he, this young man is not attracted to him. He believe, he considers him a very close friend. He has great friendship or even love for him, but my great uncle wants it to become a physically close relationship, and the young man, Skip Coons, is not interested. So it becomes very quickly a story of unrequited love and a very sad story, one that 
anyone who's alive and, and has fondness for other people understands immediately. It's the pain of unrequited love. Well, so. the diary, I mean, this is super important that you had the diary, which the person who gave it to you, also an important figure in your great uncle's life. That's, that's an, also important to note is, you know, who uh, Benedict it was. Um, I want to go back into even just dialing it all. I mean, the, this book doesn't just talk about, you know, uh, Bobby Cutler, uh, 1953 and after, uh, but goes all the way back to just talking about you know how how deep your family is in American politics and history and this very complex. Per- it, what I got was complexity of who Bobby Cutler was and, mm-hmm. and you know pro- prominent Bostonian family um, family of of wealth privilege politics Bostonian Republican family of uh, super educated. Harvard Law graduate at the same time, or served for World War One, uh, very, very much patriotic, yet um, loved literature, drama, and cross-dressing. <laughs> right. Don't forget that little. Yeah. yeah. So 12 years of, of research, you had the diary, but I mean, how deep did you have to go and how much of your own family's history uh, did you already know? And Well, that was a a joy of writing the book was that I got to learn a lot of family history along the way. And I tried not to diverge into stuff that would just be of interest to our family. But it's fascinating that this that the Cutler family and Bobby was the the fifth of five brothers, um, uh, all born in the uh, Boston suburb of of Brookline. Um, He was born in 1895. Um, All five brothers went to Harvard. All five brothers were in what's called the Porcellian Club, which is uh, one of the elite clubs among the students there. Um, and uh, but they were the family was uh, of the Roosevelt tradition of republicanism, that, that sort of progressive republicanism that is the inheritor of the party of Lincoln, which is not really extant to this day. It's kind of gone, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what happened there is, and is the great shift of American political history is that FDR took the Democrats, the party of segregation, the party of the old South, and reached out to the African-American community and tried to build a bridge to the African-American community. Meanwhile, the Republicans who had historically greater claim to alliance with African-Americans, um, became more the party of states' rights and minimal government, in good part in reaction to what FDR had done. So that republicanism that Bobby Cutler came out of was a, a party, a, a progressive or liberal republicanism, if you can call it that. Um, so they, they supported a ban on lynching, they supported women's rights, they, there were the very interesting things that came out of that. And Bobby himself was a republican who could work across the aisle. He worked um, with the Democratic mayor of Boston, Maurice Tobin. Helped get him elected, in fact, right? That's right. He was a very close associate of Maurice Tobin. And that was in 1940. And then he went to work in FDR's War Department, where FDR had brought in the Republican Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. So Bobby came from this tradition of republicanism that was able to cross boundaries. Hmm. Well, what, of course, was unsaid was that Bobby was crossing a lot more lines than a lot of the other Republicans. So, And I think it gets to a good sense of what type of a person he was, as well as what regard he was held in. When he was, he was working, was it, I believe, in the, and at, toward the end of the Roosevelt administration, where he was working on voting for uh, rights for U.S. overseas troops, which sounds like a really arcane thing to bring up, but it's, I think, very key and very important. So can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, FDR and, and uh, his administration believed that everyone f- serving in the armed forces deserved a right to vote. It seems natural, right? You, you're putting your life on the line. Shouldn't you have a right to vote? Well, the Republicans, however, many Republicans, um, uh, viewed this as a ploy because they thought that soldiers would naturally vote for their commander-in-chief. Um, segregationist Democrats viewed it as a ploy to enable black soldiers to vote. And they had very strict rules that 
basically suppressed the black vote. Poll taxes and, and really um, arcane and brutal uh, political measures that, that today, of course, are no longer in existence in, in, for the most part. In those old forms, maybe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. There are new methods. Yeah. Um, but uh, so Bobby was at the head of working in the War Department with Congress to create a war ballot commission that would enable soldiers to vote. But it was a very thorny, thorny battle in Congress. Um, uh, the segregationists came out strong and the measure was watered down. But it did ultimately pass, and there was a war ballot commission that, that Bobby headed, and many soldiers were able to vote. So it's just another example of how Bobby Cutler was an extraordinary fixer. He was a talented person who knew how to solve problems, governmental problems in Washington, and work across the aisle. Uh, it's, a, it's a lost art, really. <laughs> no, we have fixers now, but they're arranging payments to porn stars. <laughs> <laughs> That's another kind of fixer. Well, another... This is a good fixer. Bobby yes. a good fixer. Well, yeah, and, and, and that really, in the early chapters of the book, you really get the sense. These people, keep, you know, he keeps going back to where he was, was he president of... Uh, the Old Colony Trust. Old Colony after Trust. the war, yeah. after uh, he, he went back to Boston, he became the president of the largest trust company outside of New York, the Old Colony Trust Company. Yep, and he kept getting asked, oh, can you come work on this project? Can you do this? You do it. Then he'd go back there, you know, six months later, a year later, or whatever, he'd, someone else would say, oh, can you come and do this? I mean, he, he seemed to know everybody. He seemed to know how things work, yeah. how to do it, keep his head down and, and get it done. Yeah. Um, and... This helps him develop one of his other most important relationships in his life, which is with Dwight Eisenhower. So introduce Ike. So Bobby first got to know Ike right at the end of the war, um, but uh, he soon became much more closely associated with him through his good friend Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., the Republican senator from the state of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. In fact, Bobby had helped Cabot Lodge uh, win election in the 30s, and um, it would, they, were very, they were very good friends. Cabot Lodge soon became closely involved in 1952 with an effort to draft Ike, who at that time was a general and, and his party had not been elect, uh, identified, into the, uh, becoming the Republican nominee. Yeah. And um, he brought Bobby into this effort. And um, Bobby uh, worked during the convention that summer in Chicago. Um, uh, helping um, Cabot Lodge marshal votes and um, tamp down some remarkable um, uh, tactics by Senator Lodge, uh, Senator uh, Taft of Ohio. Um, there, there was a really hard, hard, uh, toughly, vigorously contested convention. And if, and if I can interrupt. It was really getting to the core split of the Republican Party at the time, which was this internationalist wing, the the strong, you know, open to other nations, and uh, as well as feeling a mission for the country uh, abroad versus Taft, who, I don't know if you'd call him isolationist, but much more America first-ish. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there had been a strong isolationist movement in the United States sure. prior to the Second World War. It was uh, the Second World War tamped it down and, and the nation was brought together. Mm -hmm. But it re there was a resurgence of it. And Taft was uh, one of the leaders. Um, how, how key to Ike's election do you think Bobby was? Um, I think he, he played a critical role first in the convention, mm -hmm. but more particularly after Ike's nomination, um, Ike invited Bobby on the campaign train. And um, he knew Bobby to be enormously entertaining, but also extremely good at writing and at working through political situations. Yeah. And on the campaign train, he, he juggled many tasks and, and, and um, including, including those. Bobby also, by the way, had worked on the Psychological Strategy Board, which under President Truman, which was a, a, a board, uh, an organization 
um, focused on national security and propaganda and the threat from the Soviet Union. So Bobby began advising Ike on national security issues as well. And um, it was in the course of this campaign that Bobby explained his theory that the National Security Council, which had been largely neglected by President Truman and which had been created by the National Security Act of 1947, mm -hmm. could be a much more important part of protecting the United States and ensuring that it was indeed secure from foreign adversaries and foreign threats. And Ike actually gave two uh, political speeches talking about improving the National Security Council, which is fascinating because it, it doesn't often become, you don't hear politicians talking about uh, making a, a political issue of right. the National Security right. Council. Although, ironically, later on, JFK would do the same to Ike. But, uh, so, uh, but, but Bobby served many functions during the campaign, and uh, including one of which was, of course, keeping Ike in good spirits. He also helped Ike navigate um, a relationship um, with Senator Joseph McCarthy. And you have to talk about this, because when we're talking, on the one hand, about pro kind of the progressive Republican strain, they're making deals with the populist, nationalist, ultra, you know, fire-breathing, anti-communist uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy from my home state of Wisconsin. Um, so tell us about how that went. Well, so what you need to remember is that by this time, McCarthyism was in full flower, if, you can, if such a thing can flower, I'm not sure. <laughs> it was uh, in full force. Yeah. Uh, McCarthy had made his famous speech saying he had a list of 200 card-carrying Communist Party members in the State Department in February of 1950. And he, he, he was just picking up steam at this time. And, and um, uh, so um, Ike had uh, gingerly um, uh, challenged McCarthy. So when McCarthy attacked General George Marshall, mm -hmm. the great hero of World War II, the chief of staff, who had later served as uh, Truman's emissary toward, to China, um, uh, Eisenhower actually defended Marshall against McCarthy's attacks. Mm -hmm. But when it came time to win the election in the fall of 1952, Ike, being the master strategist who had forged alliances with uh, difficult uh, allies throughout his military career, um, I'm thinking, for example, of the often considered pompous Marshall Montgomery yeah. uh, and, and others, um, he realized he needed to make an ally out of McCarthy. So when his campaign train was going through uh, Wisconsin in um, October of 1953, he had McCarthy on the campaign train. He told uh, the people of the United States that every Republican candidate in Wisconsin should be reelected. Well, that included Joseph McCarthy, who was running. Um, McCarthy went on the back of the campaign, on, on the, uh, stood on the back of the back platform of the train with the president, or with the nominee, excuse me. And so there was an alliance built there. And, and most notoriously, um, Ike removed from one of his speeches um, a, a, another defense of uh, General Marshall. At, at the recommendation of a number of Republicans uh, there uh, on the staff. Uh, so, um, but Bobby's role in that was to try to soften it. He, he believed that, um, that it was not necessary, mm -hmm. but ultimately the accounts suggest that once Ike sort of agreed to, act, to remove the language, uh, that Bobby did as, as was instructed and, and didn't, didn't push him, didn't argue with him, and, and did, uh, well, he could tell that Ike's dander was up. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that, that Bobby really knew how to do was to know when it's time to listen to the boss. Ultimately, Bobby viewed I uh, President Eisenhower as a hero and a, and, a, and a man he revered, and he trusted his judgment. And um, so that's a long story, but I think that... <laughs> yeah, there's um, so much in this book, by the way. I mean, we could, uh, they could go through our political well, history. And, and, uh, and uh, you, did you want to say one more well, thing before? Because I'm going to move, move on this into... This alliance with McCarthy yeah. 
um, in which McCarthy was decrying subversives in the federal government and also uh, making attacks on right. suspected homosexuals and suspected communists. He blurred his his red scare with his the L what, lavender scare. The lavender scare, the, the fear of homosexuality, and this would later lead to Executive Order 10450 during the in, in April of 1957. And so I'll let you pick yeah. it up from there. What, yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to jump into that. I know we have a lot to cover, um, and, and just setting up the environment at the time. So I'm glad that we did bring up McCarthy. But to really understand what I loved about some of the things that you brought up was the fact that you know the uh, uh, anti-homosexuality uh, attitudes was not just directed here at home in the United States, but this was elsewhere or outside. So it truly became a conversation of national security when you were talking about um, homosexuals. Um, and what I mean by that is, I mean, you had, you know, Vidal and his book at the time. You had uh, Kinsey. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, talking about sexuality in, in men and some figure of like, you know, at least 30 percent of, of men will experience some kind of homosexual experience in their lifetime. And that really adding to this scare of, you know, gay people and right. what we should do with them. And so let, let's dive right into, you know, Bobby Cutler, his position as national security advi advisor and him being really, I mean, this, this was his insistence of, you know, executive order 10450, um, which would really impact anybody, you know, gay working for the government while he himself Maybe he didn't know it at the time that he would call himself gay, but if you go through the beginning of the book and the reading, I mean, he certainly, you know, had already uh, dabbled into, I think it was a favorite of his, and, and having, you know, passionate relationships with older men and reading homoerotic novels and, again, cross-dressing. And it, it, like, the culture of gay was already there, if he was going to call it that. Um, and although that that was very much a part of him, he, he really went through with this executive order knowing that he was going to impact uh, people's lives, especially people who were close to him anyway. Right. So he brought the order to Ike's attention and, um, and in, on April 27, 1953, um, a little more than um, three months into the administration, Ike signed it and it took effect. And it would have a terrible effect on gay Americans, uh, as many as 10,000 were uh, dismissed from their jobs. Um, some committed suicide. Lives were upended. It was a, it was a it was an astonishing thing. Um, just to get back to the 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 point, and for the, I think today's America finds it really hard to understand. So far, have have we come in many ways, um, but. The, the thing that you're alluding to is that, that in, in, in 1948, um, Gore Vidal's book, The City and the Pillar, came out as a full discussion of gay culture and introducing the word queen and um, introducing anonymous sexual connections, introducing how many stars in Hollywood were gay. And then you had the Kinsey Report, which, as you noted, said that 37% of people were... 30% uh, of men would have some sexual experience. 10% of men would have a gay experience or be in a gay relationship for at least three years. And most importantly, perhaps, that sexuality exists on a continuum, that no one is either all hetero or all gay, that, that, that people shift in their lives. And, and at one point, they may be more one than the other. Or, uh, it, so it was, a, it was an eye-opener, this period for America, and there was a backlash against it, and that's what led gave McCarthy his his power, and that's um, when Ike went out to say, and he'd been campaigning with McCarthy. He felt he had to make good on that campaign to the American people, and he um, issued this order that included the term sexual perversion. It said. Uh, we will investigate every employee, every possible employee of the government, and see if they pose a security risk. And you will, investigators will consider whether they exhibit sexual perversion. They've been caught lying. They're alcoholics. They are in subversive organizations, meaning the Communist Party. And um, 
what, why I call, I call it the peculiar ban, because it was in essence a ban on gay people working for the government. And, but why is it peculiar? It's peculiar because, number one, we know almost nothing about any kind of discussion in the administration about why this term would be put in this order. There's no dialogue, there's no discussion, is it really necessary? Also, by the way, the term sexual perversion isn't even defined. It's people, it was so common, it was so much so front of mind for everyone in America that it, they didn't need to define it. Everyone knew that sexual perversion equals homosexuality. Well, sexual perversion doesn't mean equal homosexuality. I'm sorry. That's, you know, today's idea of what sexual perversion is something very different, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it would probably infuse, include some kind of, uh, I won't even go down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Diff different show. So, <laughs> but, um, so uh, that's how it came about. It was a, a bizarre ban that, that because we knew so little of how it just kind of appeared. Um, but one of the things I did do was go in and track how it came out of uh, some uh, an obscure committee mm -hmm. um, in the Truman administration, and Bobby brought it up on January 21st, and it, because there had been some notion of recommending a much simpler two-page improvement of security rules, and Bobby, being a lawyer who uh, believed in the importance of process, said to Ike, "Well, this has already been approved by." President Truman's administration. It's been considered by different bodies in government to make sure it works with you know, civil service and other things like that. There was a complicated system already in place for regulating employees. Bobby recommended it, Ike signed it, and um, the rest is history. Um, I want to get into what you think Eisenhower's attitude was because he, Cutler was his closest aide or one of his closest aides a friend, you know, close friend, would go for drinks and dinner with uh, Ike and Mamie. Um, and I, I, I w if you would share the story about when Eisenhower is in Europe commanding troops and the Women's Air Corps, do I have that correct? Uh, there's an issue there. Yeah. Well, so Ike um, had uh, one of the, the heads of the Women's Air Corps come into his office and said, we, we need to um, address this issue. I, I want to... Um, I, we're going to need to get rid of all the lesbians in the Women's Air Corps, and uh, I want you to make a list of that. And she said, well, sir, um, you have to understand, um, uh, lesbians, you know, they have a, a far lower rate of sexually transmitted diseases. There are no pregnancies. <laughs> <laughs> and beyond that, if, if I do this, my name will be at the top. <laughs> and... <laughs> So you're going to have to you're going to have to dismiss. And by the way, it's it's a very large percentage of the Women's Air Corps. And um, Ike's secretary said, "No, you won't, because I'm I'm going to type the list, and my name's going to be at the top of the list." And at that point, Ike said, "Let's just forget this." <laughs> um, so that's that's the interesting and another reason why this is a a, a peculiar ban because Ike actually had a tradition of or. or Sign, there were signposts in Ike's life that he was very tolerant, mm -hmm. including the fact that he hired Bobby Cutler in the first place. It, it seems virtually impossible. We have no knowledge, no documented knowledge that he knew that Bobby was gay, but it seems virtually certain because what we know is that everyone who knew Bobby has basically said that if he was in after-hours situations, he was always professional in the workplace, but after-hours little hints would slip. And, and people would begin to understand. And he spent many hours with Ike and Mamie in social settings. There's, it's vir it seems virtually impossible that he would not know. You kind of have to assume that Ike would have to be stupid not to know, and he was not a stupid man. He was not. We have a few minutes, and I just want to give the audience a chance to let you know that you do have your own chances of asking Peter your questions. We'll have a mic roving around. so. Keep that in mind, um, and I know you have some slides that you want to show us. We even want to do a, a reading, so I'm going to bring it up right now. I mean, for me, reading through the book as uh, someone with a uh, younger lens um, and with a contemporary mind of you know the LGBTQ movement, I I, I guess yes, shocked, and at, and and at the same time um, in. Uh, 
not really sure what the words are in understanding just how gay the administration was anyway, even at the time when, you know, you were reading through historical stuff and calling it the Lavender Scare. It was really scary to be LGBTQ at the time. But what I'm, I'm also saying is, although Bobby Cutler, as we know now, may have been gay or is a gay man uh, who wrote this executive order that was terrifying for gay uh, federal employees, well, you have an FBI director at the same time uh, who's rumored to be gay. And, and then, you know, so let's talk about um, a very actually painful, sad maybe moment for Bobby Cutler um, and this policy, how it impacted his personal life, who he fell in love with, because Hoover ends up investigating his great love. That's right. Well, let's the, the case that I want to tell you about doesn't involve investigating Skip Coons, the young man whom he hired on the National Security Council staff and fell in love with. It, it involves an investigation that Hoover directed at Bobby himself. And this came about in April of 1957. And what happened is that three young male employees in the White House staff were found to be gay. Um, one of them was picked up by a vice squad um, at George Washington University trying to make a connection in a, in a men's room. And he led to the other two. One of the men told the Secret uh, Service that he had been working with Bobby Cutler. His name was Joseph Halter. And he told the men that he'd been working with Bobby Cutler, that he was certain that Cutler was a homosexual, that if he continued working with Cutler, there would be an embarrassment for the White House, and that he'd seen a letter in which it was stated that uh, English, uh, British Prime Minister Anthony Eden was a homosexual, and that Lord Mountbatten was a homosexual. Lord Mountbatten was... Uh, the Queen's um, uncle and um, a very prominent um, uh, wartime leader uh, of England and also a friend of President Eisenhower's. And um, this was, then uh, Sherman Adams, the chief of staff, quickly brought this to J. Edgar Hoover's attention because he feared that there had been a security breach in the White House. How did this young man, who was in a clerical staff position, see this document? Um, now, Sherman Adams, the, the former governor of New Hampshire, was actually a very close friend of Bobby's. But nonetheless, evidently, he felt he had to do this, even, th so, even though this man had impugned Bobby Cutler by saying he was gay. J. Edgar Hoover rushes to the White House and uh, begins an investigation, questions Bobby, and um, wants to understand what's going on. So I'll read you a snippet of that, if that's okay with you. Yeah, you got your book. Um, so, um, the fact that the 1953 letter had been sent to Bobby appeared to put, uh, sorry, back, back one, one more footnote. Hoover did a search in his own files and found that the letter uh, that, that the document accusing um, uh, Mountbatten and Eden of being homosexuals was something that he himself had sent to Bobby Cutler four years earlier in 1953. Okay? The fact that the 1953 letter had been sent to Bobby appeared to put Bobby's own conduct in question. Had he shown Hoover's letter to Halter, the young, the young gay man who'd been arrested? If Bobby did show it to him, why and when? If, if Bobby did not show the letter to Halter, how had Halter seen it? Why did Halter think Bobby was homosexual? And why did he think continuing to work with Bobby would lead to an embarrassment for the White House? These questions would have been fairly logical to ask. Yet Hoover's memo, and this is, we're talking about a memo that Hoover wrote to Clyde Tolson, by the way. Yet Hoover's memo ends abruptly without mention of further investigative steps. For years, Hoover had positioned himself as vigilant in ferreting out sex deviates from the federal government. That's what he called them, sex deviates. Yet there is no documentary evidence he pursued Bobby further. It is possible to speculate that Hoover decided to overlook the allegations of homosexuality against Bobby because Bobby was a general, an unquestionably loyal American, a devout Christian, a vigorous anti-communist, and a key member of Eisenhower's inner circle. Perhaps most significantly, 
an investigation of Bobby, Bobby would likely have caused severe damage to Hoover's relationship with Eisenhower. Hoover also may have recognized in Bobby a kindred soul, a powerful aging bachelor who had intense relationships with men. Each was vulnerable to and could ill afford an allegation of homosexuality levied against him publicly. Ultimately, how Hoover may have rushed to make that phone call to Bobby with two competing motives. First, to investigate the case and gain leverage over Bobby, and second, to protect Bobby as a friend and ally. Hoover himself may not have known which of these two competing motives he would give free reign to later. Whatever his reasons, Hoover soon dropped his probe of Bobby's handling of the Eden letter and of Halter's allegations that Bobby was gay. There are no additional investigative reports in Hoover's official and confidential file on the matter titled simply, White House Employees, Homosexuals. On April 19, 1957 again, Hoover noted uh, that, uh, that General Goodpaster, a member of the White House staff, asked the FBI to return the Secret Service investigative report to the White House. Hoover, however, had a photostat copy of the Secret Service report placed in his confidential file. A few weeks later, in a memo to Clyde Tolson, that's Hoover's longtime associate director who lived with him and, and spent endless hours with yeah, him. Nothing gay about that. That's nothing at all, nothing at all. Um, uh, Hoover said he had informed the Attorney General that, quote, our investigation had not in any way substantiated the original allegations against General Cutler. So in essence, Bobby Cutler dodged a bullet in a very big way. And there were other FBI reports that I obtained through Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, you also relate in here someone who's doing uh, these investigations, and I forget if it was on the White House staff or whatever, but about he, he was proud about it, you know, and, and make really quick decisions. This person's gay, get him the heck out of here. And uh, how many of them would walk out of the door and, and shoot themselves or something. Um, what do you think Cutler would have done had this been revealed, and would he have just resigned quietly and gone back to Boston and, you know, tried to, or do you think he might have ended his life? I mean, do you know? Well, I'm asking you to read minds, but. Certainly. Um, well, I can tell you that Bobby Cutler is actually the first national security advisor and the fourth national security advisor of the United States. And what happened is after two and a half years, he resigned in 1955. Mm -hmm. And that was as the 1956 election campaign was coming up. Now, all we know from the correspondence is that Bobby was telling um, Ike that he was exhausted, he needed a rest. But the fact is that once he re resigned and went back to Boston, he went to work for the Old Colony Trust, he resumed as president of Old Colony, and he immediately began campaigning for Ike. He did a bunch of public speeches, he wrote articles and papers, and he also um, was given a, a security clearance past to come back into the White House and work as a consultant to the campaign. So I'm not sure how exhausted he was. Yeah. <laughs> More than it likely, it seems that he was actually just trying to avoid the press. And, and when I say the press, I'm talking about Confidential Magazine in particular, which was known for outing gays um, and, and, and other publications, uh, common newspapers, that they might identify him as gay, which would be explosive that the keeper of the secrets of the National Security Council was gay. It would have, as one of a very fine biographer, um, Kai Bird, has suggested, um, they say it would have uh, basically imploded the Eisenhower presidency. Um, so Bobby, not willing to risk the man he revered, took time off. And then in uh, late 56, um, uh, he went to the home of Skip Coons, the young man whom he was so passionate about, and Steve Benedict, his friend who had worked on the campaign and his former lover, um, and said, I'm confident Ike's going to bring me back if he wins re-election. Well, Ike won re-election and Bobby was brought back. And so he was the fourth national security advisor. There had been two inter people intervening, um, neither of whom were prominent and... and um, 
So, and then Bobby held the position for another year and a half and left again. Um, and at that time, um, it may have been some combination of exhaustion and fear. We, we don't really know. It, it's, he's very obscure as to why he left again in 58. Even in his diaries, he doesn't? Even in his diaries, no. Um, so, yeah. um, so about Skip, uh, I'll read one other passage if that's all right. And yeah. this is about his love of Skip. And, and Skip Coons is an extraordinary individual. Yeah. He grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. He was um, 31 years younger than Bobby. Um, but during the war, he had learned Russian at the Naval Language School in Boulder, Colorado. He then uh, went to work in the Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, he wrote a very important report on um, the threat posed by the Soviet Union after the Second World War. And then he was deployed uh, in an operative, operational status to the 7th Fleet um, in, based in Tsingtao, China. And um, there he uh, was sent on a mission uh, with a vessel that, that um, became involved in an in a early Cold War conflict with Soviet soldiers in which he was the only person translating for this American vessel as Soviet officers were org um, angrily ordering them to leave the port of Dairen, China. So he had a remarkable background. Mm. Um, he also, by the way, was... Um, Oriented toward the Republican Party, he agreed uh, generally with actually Joseph McCarthy's complaint that General Marshall had turned a blind eye to the Soviets' role in helping the communists in China uh, win that war against the nationalists. Um, so ultimately, um, Bobby uh, Steve Benedict, who worked on the campaign. Uh, introduced uh, his former lover, Skip, to Bobby Cutler, and Bobby hires him sight unseen. At that time, he's working for the CIA in, in France, uh, sorry, in, in Munich, launching uh, the anti-Soviet uh, broadcasts uh, that, that would soon become a very important part of U.S. foreign policy. Um, this, however, is four years into the administration, and, um, in, and, it's, and Bobby is now in his second term as National Security Advisor. Mm -hmm. And it's July of 1957, and Bobby and Skip decide to go out and see a movie. Um, on Saturday night, July 13, 1957, Bobby and Skip went out to see a movie. And after the show, Skip drove Bobby home in his Thunderbird. Skip pulled the black convertible up in front of the family, Bobby's residence a few blocks from the White House. The stark age difference between the two men, Bobby was 62 and Skip was 31, did not impede the sharing of affection. The moment came rushing back to Bobby as he poured out his feelings of love for Skip in a secret diary. He brought me home from a movie in The Thunderbird and when to say goodnight outside number 1718 H Street, I took his hand, our fingers for a moment interlaced. It was at that moment the greatest adventure of my life began. The best, the purest, the most penetrating emotion I ever knew. God keep this spirit always so, wearing his cross, thinking of his happiness, remembering every minute of his serenity and serious charm, wanting nothing of life but to have a part of his life. By the time Bobby wrote this glowing diary entry a year later, he was wearing a gold cross that Skip had given him. In another diary entry, Bobby wrote, the brilliant light of my love for him throws all the rest of this world in shadow. So it was a very sweeping emotion and, and his, um, his diary is, is full of these kind of florid and, and over the top expressions of love for this young man. Which was all ultimately unrequited. That's right, yeah. as far as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Bobby would later have other relationships with young men, and he would ultimately tell um, one of them that, that he had had sex with a man once, but we don't know who that man was. Oh, find out, Peter, find out. That's, <laughs> that's the next book. Well, I want to open it up to our audience now to ask Peter some questions. Yeah, I know I that we, we do have some slides. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah why, if why you want to... Why don't we do some slides, and then we'll... So think of your questions, and I'll bring the mic around. Yeah. Sure. I can just uh, okay. 
stand here, maybe. Um, so that's the cover of the book. Bobby has a two-year-old in Brookline, Massachusetts. Bobby is a young thespian on the stage preparing for a performance at Volkman School in Boston where he went to school. And this is a, a photo that emerged from the files of Steve Benedict. Um, I spent a tremendous amount of time trying to figure out who the young man on the right is. It's Bobby on the left. This is June of 1914. So Bobby's about 18 years old. Um, and um, he's obviously very fond of this young man, but we, we don't know who it is. And um, the picture evidently was given by Bobby to Skip Coons. And after Skip's death, all of uh, Skip's documents wound up with Steve Benedict. And that's how we had this picture and the diaries and hundreds of letters, which I also have used in writing the book. This is Bobby in Plattsburgh, uh, Plattsburgh in uh, 1917. Plattsburgh was the scene of a, a volunteer soldier training effort that was a, it was a whole movement about, of preparing the United States. Bobby was a tremendous believer in the U.S. military and in um, having citizens do their patriotic duty. And he would eventually serve and, and go over to France and serve in World War I, although he never saw frontline action. He was mostly a military policeman. And that's him in the front yes, thank audience, you. right? Right. Oh, front right, yep. Bobby comes back, he goes to Harvard Law. Here he is, he's a Harvard Law Review uh, editor. He's a second, uh, very front row, second from the left. Class of 1922. Bobby, uh, second from the right, with his four brothers and his father, George Cutler. Clearly, this was a family that had terrible problems with poverty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, interestingly, though, they did um, know many of the Boston Brahmins, but they were really not of that kind of super, super old wealth, Brahmin wealth. They, um, their father had a, a timber mill in Maine. They had come down from Maine to Boston only in like the 1880s. Um, so they, you know, they weren't old line Brahmins. They were kind of strivers. Um, so this is my grandfather is sort of in the middle in the back. And Bobby, he, he was the oldest. And um, Bobby Cutler uh, was the baby. This is Bobby with uh, Mayor Maurice Tobin, the Democratic mayor of Boston, who was a good friend of his and um, also who hired him to be Corporation Counsel in the city of Boston. This is um, Bobby with Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. On the right, Bobby is with a parasol, looking quite <laughs> fetching. <laughs> Nothing gay about that at all. No, not at all. Uh, evidently, it was a, uh, some sort of a costume party. Bobby's longtime male friend, uh, Chandler Bigelow, immediately to the left of Bobby, is not enthused. He's just not enjoying this. Right? <laughs> He's, um, and then to the left, you have Senator Lodge's wife, Emily, and his, her sister, Jean. Um, at the end of the war, Secretary of War Henry Stimson um, uh, awards Bobby uh, the Distinguished Service Medal. And that's Secretary of War Stimson, of course. This is in the campaign train in the, the candidate's car in the rear, um, the, the last car in the train. Um, uh, you can see a lot of cigarettes there in the foreground. <laughs> oh my God. Reflecting the time. Um, and um, Ike was an amazing writer, I should say, and, and he enjoyed Bobby's uh, linguistic abilities and, and complimented them and enjoyed the contributions that they made. And they had a lot of discussions about speeches. This is Ike and Mamie and uh, coming down the steps uh, after church service with Bobby on the right um, <clears throat> at Columbia University. Peter, we got a, f a few minutes left. I want to make sure we do get a chance uh, for our audience to ask sure. questions. I'll go really quick. Okay. Ike and Bobby working in the campaign. Um, Ike and Bobby and um, Christian Herter in, in Harvard Square 
uh, shortly before the election, Octo late October 1952. Uh, Bobby and other members of the administration, uh, other uh, uh, cabinet members uh, in 1954 in Quantico, Virginia. Bobby bicycling, he was a tremendous bicycling enthusiast. Here he's going along the, the uh, river in Washington. Here's Steve Benedict, um, both as he looked in Cannes when he lived uh, in southern France with uh, Skip Coons, his, his, then his lover, and then as he looked in the White House directory. There's Skip. Skip aboard the vessel that went to the port of Diren, as I discussed. Uh, he's the fifth from the left with the uh, white ascot and the blue jacket looking very dashing. Mm -hmm. um, Skip's black convertible. Skip and Bobby, this is another treasure photograph that came out. This is Skip and Bobby by a swimming pool at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington. And then in uh, May of 1958, Skip and Bobby take a trip to Venice. And, and this is a photograph that was taped into the diary. Um, a postcard that Bobby wrote to Ike when visiting uh, the Soldiers Memorial. Eventually, Bobby, Skip moves back to Boston, and um, Bobby buys him a sailboat. I was going to say, is that the one you <laughs> That's the boat. Yeah. Um, Ike appoints Bobby to the Inter-American Development Bank. The relationship continues. And here's the most important photograph. This is Steve with the diary itself. Wow. Um, and you can just leave that one up. Is that the last one? Yeah, that's the last one. Uh -oh. Anyway. So. I'm kind of sad that my diary is all in the form of Facebook posts. <laughs> um, all right, time for questions. And John's going to go around with the mic. It is being taped for, for broadcast later. I'm going to start here, and then we'll go to you. Um, do you happen to know if your uncle ever regretted signing that order, if there was any evidence that you know he came to regret it, felt badly about it, once he saw the effects you know, in practical terms? That's a wonderful question, and I spent many, many, many hours looking for signs that he regretted it, and I never was able to find any expression of opinion on that at all. Even though um, one of the things that we talked about, uh, or we haven't talked about here today, is that Skip and, and Steve would ultimately be subjected to an investigation under Executive Order 10450, and it would only end when Skip resigned from his job. At that time, he was working for the U.S. Embassy in Paris. And um, although uh, that ultimately, uh, we don't know whether Bobby knew the substance of that investigation. Ultimately, Bobby helped Skip find a job at the bank back in Boston, and he ends up back in Boston. But no, to, short answer is, I never learned, uh, I never found any expression of regret from, my, from Bobby Cutler over that order. How and when was that order rescinded? Uh, great question. It, it basically um, uh, was eroded through a series of court decisions and um, subsequent executive orders over a period of years. There was not exactly you know, a single order rescinding it. Um, so... Um, uh, it would take years before it was actually, um, many years before it was actually taken out of effect. You know, eventually, um, yeah, so it was, it was many years. <laughs> Great. I'm curious if your research identified at all any advice that Cutler may have given Eisenhower surrounding the issue of racial integration, particularly given the Montgomery bus boycott in 55 and the sending in of federal troops to Little Rock in 57. Um, uh, the very important um, uh, civil rights issues that were coming up during the Eisenhower administration did not get treated in the National Security Council. Um, and I, I looked uh, very closely at the National, because of course that's such an important issue um, uh, in those days, including the Civil Rights Act of 1957. All of that was handled by the cabinet and um, the uh, Attorney General was not in, on the National Security Council. So there's no sign that Cutler advised Ike in any regard on um, civil rights issues. Any other questions? I know we wanted to talk about the whole issue of 
outing your great uncle and, and there's some controversy about that or I mean give us some sense of your thinking about that some people think maybe oh you should have left you know that's his secret others are like so much time has passed what was your approach to it my feeling is that um, uh, that given the enlightened view that contemporary America has uh, of homosexuality and gay rights that he would actually want this story told at this time. Um, I also feel some um, uh, comfort, and I was very concerned about outing my great uncle yeah. and revealing this against his will. Um, but I do take some comfort in knowing that all of my family members, who, including those who knew him, said, please publish this. No one opposed it. And um, I also note that um, uh, Bobby gave the diary to Skip, who left it for Steve to handle, and Steve gave it to me. So I feel some, <laughs> it's kind of, I don't know. But across the top of the diary, each of those six volumes has, uh, please give to Skip Coons without reading, um, uh, Which, of course, means read it. <laughs> right, right. But it is interesting. He didn't destroy them. He didn't destroy them. And he did have other diaries, by the way, from his early years. Mm -hmm. And boy, did I want to find those. But then I found a document, a letter from him saying that he had, he had burned those, unfortunately. Um, so that would have been very interesting to, to know more about his early years. Yeah. yeah. We are winding down on time, and uh, I'm, I'm super sad. I mean, again, this incredible biography, this book, is, is a gift. I, I'm going to put it out there and, and tell you that. Um, I think it is an important part of our history, our politics, and I consider it a part of you know gay history. It should be, and every LGBTQ person really should have a copy of this um, as we move forward in our country. Hopefully it's forward in 2020. I want it to be forward. Uh, so my last question is really this. And although you couldn't find any evidence suggesting that there was some regret to this policy, I, um, I can make a statement today that I think history repeats itself and there are still individuals who serve in positions of power and in fact maybe even in this administration who could be closeted or not themselves or authentic and honest who could be implementing policies that impact people's lives. I mean people's lives were lost in this policy. We mentioned suicide, we mentioned you know lost of, of, of a job and, and, and so it was, it was horrible. We should not forget that it was horrible although you know, Bobby Cutler was able to resign and he was able to have relationships uh, after he served. I would love for you to end with just, you know, your words of, of, of um, leaving us um, applying what has happened in the past with what is happening here today and why everyone should know your great uncle's story in hopes that we stop repeating history. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think the, the, the first takeaway from the book is that, that um, this is a story of uh, remarkable patriotism and, and commitment to um, the common good of the United States um, by gay people, including service in the military and putting their lives in line for the military. Um, uh, but beyond that, this book um, tells the story uh, very clearly of how um, Political leaders will identify a vulnerable minority and exploit that minority to amass their own and increase their own political power. And, and that's very much the story of Executive Order 10450. And, and it's hard to say that because of the, the um, issues that we've spoken about, that, that Ike's sympathy for gay people, and yet Ike and Bobby should have known better that what they were doing could be exploited by people in the agencies to get rid of homosexuals willy-nilly and, and frenetically, and that's what happened. And um, it's an important lesson for us uh, and to, to keep in mind going forward. <laughs> Thank you very much. Peter Schinkel, everyone, author of Ike's Mystery Man.
for the most part, uh, unless there's a holiday of some sort, but we do uh, LGBTQ inclusion in, here at the Commonwealth Club. To, tomorrow's a special day. Friday, we're doing an event here, and you're more than welcome to come. It's free and open to the public. It's an immigrant day of visibility in which uh, Senator Kamala Harris is recognizing several Bay Area organizations who are doing the work and protecting our immigrant community. It will be, was she, given she out. will not be here. She will not be here. Her, her office will be, yes. will be here, uh, handing out the awards. Um, and uh, former supervisor David Campos will be emceeing the event, and we'll have some entertainers and great food. So come if you like. Uh, there's still some space. And last but not least, please get a copy of the book if you don't have it. Peter will be uh, uh, signing the books, and he'll be back there. Um, and, and thank you. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you.